Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to yet another edition of the Mike Sports Roundup. I'm Michael Zabo, coming to you live here on WSJU Radio, live from our Marillac Hall studios here on the campus of St. John's University. And we're here on this uh, April 12th. Um, we had last week off, um, so got a lot to catch up on. Um, we're going to go through a little bit of the Final Four National Championship that took place last weekend, uh, go into a little bit of the NFL with the uh, NFL draft coming up in a couple of weeks, and Major League Baseball with the season uh, starting as well. Um, so uh, before we get uh, get kicked off today with uh, talking about all the action going on in the world of sports, uh, make sure to follow my Twitter page at at underscore Roundup and uh, my Instagram page at Michael underscore Zabo to, fo- to follow all of the updates um, with the show when they're posted up onto our podcast platforms on uh, Spotify and Anchor. Um, to get the updates on all the shows, go and head to those pages and follow me there. Um, and head to Spotify and Anchor to check out all of our previous episodes. And uh, this one will be posted uh, just after today's edition. Um, so getting right down to business, talking about the national championship, we got to talk about the final four first. We had the national championship with Gonzaga Baylor, but we can't talk about the national championship without the final four. And one half of the final four was boring. The other was really great. You had one that the final four in general was like Jekyll and Hyde. You had one that was, you know, lopsided, not entertaining at all whatsoever, then on the other side, you probably had one of the greatest Final Four games, you know, this sport has ever witnessed, at least in the last decade and a half. Uh, it was just a thrilling matchup between Gonzaga and UCLA. It finished 93-90, to of course, in favor of Gonzaga, um, with the Zags advancing to the national championship. Um, but it finished 93-90 to in overtime, and what an absolute game that was. UCLA, what a, no matter what happened, what a story they were this season. In just the second year under Mick Cronin, they go all the way to the Final Four. It's just so impressive, and especially if this can be, it seems like this is not really just, you know, it was an incredible run by UCLA. It could be, looks like the start of something really big um, over in Hollywood. Um, you know, Mick Cronin came over from Cincinnati, now in his second year, rebuilding the brand of UCLA basketball, trying to make it something sustainable that it really hasn't been consistently since before the turn of the century. Uh, so trying to uh, bring that back, we know they made the Final Four, um, you know, about 10, 12 years ago or so, but they haven't been really sustainable in a while. And we haven't seen this level of consistent success for them since uh, the 80s and 90s, um, or even even as far back as the 70s and 80s. So, uh, you know, it's interesting to see what McCronin will bring um, and how the UCLA team will continue to develop in the next couple of years. Especially if everybody can stay with UCLA, this is a team that's going to be, you know, in all of the preseason rankings, ranked near the top. Um, but that is a, a big if, if everybody stays. Um, but getting to the game specifically, Johnny Juzang, no, ma- no matter, you know, Baylor were the national champions, but one of the biggest storylines in the 2021 NCAA tournament was Johnny Juzang. 
um, for UCLA. What a story he was in this tournament. Just absolutely on fire the entire way. And against the number one team in the country, going for an unbeaten season. He goes off for 29 points in the game, including some huge buckets in order to force overtime, uh, to get UCLA to overtime. And, and they, the way, not only anchored by Juzang's performance, but just in, in general, the way UCLA pushed Gonzaga, uh, ultimately we obviously saw what happened 48, less than 48 hours later. But at that moment in time, when you had, when it was Saturday night, April uh, April 3rd, whatever it was. April 3rd, it was Saturday night, midnight. Ju- the game had just finished. And you're thinking, you know, the way that UCLA pushed Gonzaga, it was just so impressive. And, th- and then, of course, you talk about, you know, how impressive UCLA played. You, you got to talk about the other side as well. But before I talk about the other side and the obvious big moment in the Final Four, we said it, you know, before two weeks ago, the last time we were on, that UCLA could su- could surprise, um, and that they play more of a slower pace, that you know limits possessions for the other team, um, and, you know that could trouble somebody like Gonzaga if UCLA control the pace. Um, they have a good defense. They had a good defensive matchup, um, in Jaime Jaquez to line up against Corey Kispert, and that all proved true. It was really a nail-biter from tip to finish. You know, nobody was really leading by a lot. There wasn't a stretch where, you know, UCLA were up by 10 or Gonzaga were up by 10. It was really, you know, back and forth the whole way through. I I was watching it, and you just were watching that game and were thinking, any boxing fans out there, it was like the Muhammad Ali Ali and uh, George Frazier fight. Um, you know, just punch after punch, counter punch after counter punch being thrown. It's one of the great Final Four games that we will probably ever see in, in college basketball, Gonzaga-UCLA. What a performance that was. What a game because, and we're going to remember it most because of Jalen Suggs' incredible shot at the end of overtime. A half, uh, 45-foot heave, whatever it was, 40-foot heave. Um, a desperation heave from 40 feet out um, that just banked in and gave Gonzaga the three-point win. I mean, absolutely incredible stuff. And, you know, I don't know how many people saw it, but, you know, go on all the Gonzaga social media pages the day after, and, you know, they were going nuts. You'd see all the reactions going all crazy and everything. But then, of course... Less than 48 hours later, you had the complete opposite and, you know, total dejection. But, you know, everybody was talking about that Jalen Sud shot, and, you know, it was so impressive. I mean, nobody talks about the play before, and Johnny Juzang, you know, on on Corey Kispert. Kispert's matching up with him. You know, Juzang's absolutely on fire in the game. You know, UCLA just know, give it to him. Let's clear it out. And Juzang just does, you know just makes an incredible play to get the offensive rebound and put back his own miss to tie it up. You're thinking there, you're you're thinking at that point that the game's going to double overtime, you know, buckle in for another five minutes here. Um, But then all of a sudden, Gonzaga said, why not? Everybody was expecting timeout. 
I think. Uh, everybody was expecting Gonzaga to take a timeout, figure something, you know, try and figure out something crazy with three seconds left. But, hey, they did the smarter thing and did what nobody would expect. Kispert gets it into Suds quickly. And, of course, UCLA didn't want to foul, so they let him go. And, I mean, people were blaming the UCLA play. Oh, should have closed him out more, this and that. A, you don't want to foul a shooter in that situation because then you give him three shots and all he has to do is make one. But also, I mean, who's expecting to, you know, what basketball player is expecting a guy to, with three seconds left, to, to dribble up 10 feet up the court and, you know, make a shot like that? You know, so when I saw that on social media, people, people blaming the UCLA players for, uh, you know, they could have done di- things differently on that play or whatnot. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty in the end. Um, but, you know, there was nothing you could do to stop that Jalen Sud shot, which is why everybody gets enamored by it. But everybody had called it, oh, it was a Christian Leitner moment. It was this generation's Christian Leitner moment and all that kind of stuff. I don't think the moment holds the same value anymore um, as it did when it first happened because of Gonzaga losing the national championship, especially losing the way that they did. And so we move on to talk about that um, national championship game. And that was, of course, Baylor. Um, after dominating Houston 78-59, to they advanced to play against Gonzaga, um, and they beat Gonzaga 86-70. to and at least in this tournament, at least it gave it gave us one of the all-time great games in Gonzaga versus UCLA. I mean, just imagine, just imagine if, you know, let's say COVID didn't exist and we had full fans, uh, you know, a full arena there in Indianapolis. What an atmosphere that would be, you know, you know how amazing that would have been. But nonetheless, still amazing. It still had a little bit of fans that provided uh, some really good atmosphere. But at least this tournament gave us a great game, um, you know, in the latter stages with uh, Gonzaga-UCLA. At least it gave us one of the all-time greats because the national championship game, from a neutral fan point of view, is a huge let- was a huge letdown. 86-70, to 70, Baylor jumped on, on Gonzaga right away. Um, you know, it was a 9 nothing start to the game. Um, and Baylor never really looked back. They never trailed in the game. Gonzaga, the closest they came was making it a six-point game, and then Baylor just stretched it out once again. Um, you know, so it was kind of disappointing. I mean, the reason the reasons why, first off, to go into the reasons why there was that domination is because the lack of physical play from Gonzaga. I mean, yeah, people could say, oh well, they were, you know, they were tired out because less than 48 hours ago Gonzaga. Pushed the um, UCLA pushed them to their limits. They went to extra time and whatnot. I don't think it's completely that Baylor would just were just the more physically imposing team compared to Gonzaga. Um, Mark Vital was such a presence. Gonzaga had nobody to counter him. Um, just his his physicality and his length. You know, Drew Timmy could not do much there. Um, and you saw. Um, you saw a lot of uh, Gonzaga players also get into foul trouble, but the biggest reason was Gonzaga was just not able to rebound. That's the biggest reason why they they lost in the manner that they did. You know, when they're not when Mark Vital is getting eight offensive rebounds on you alone, eight offensive rebounds alone, 
you're you're not gonna win the game. And like I like I said before, they just they they Baylor just were more physical. They were just the bigger team. They were bigger. They were stronger. They were faster. They were just better in all facets that you could visually see. And you know, I think what would have been the the really interesting part of this title game, um, you know. Not just that the fact that, you know, aside from the fact that the game itself was, you know, a real dud. And I'm talking about in terms of storylines. What would have been really cool for a storyline is, God forbid, Baylor um, didn't go through that COVID pause that they did in the middle of February. Because um, when they came out of that COVID pause, the end of February and going into the end of the regular season, they didn't look like the, the Baylor Bears that we had been accustomed to for most of the season, the un, the undefeated Baylor Bears. Um, you know, they were undefeated when they hit that COVID pause. They come out of it, they're sort of flat, not looking like themselves. Things are all over the place. They lose to Kansas, then they lose in the Big 12 uh, championship to Oklahoma State. And you're thinking, oh, Baylor, huh, maybe they're, they're falling off. They're not going to make it as far as we think. And people, you know, were thinking about upsets. At some point along in the bracket. Didn't happen. Baylor, Baylor, you know, you have a week off before the NCAA tournament starts after you finish your conference tournament. And that was all they needed. They got back to being the pre-COVID pause Baylor that we all knew. And I just just imagine what the scenario, God forbid, if Baylor never went through a COVID pause, imagine that these two teams, Gonzaga and Baylor, would have met up in the championship game, both being unbeaten, and both you would have gone into that game knowing that you know somebody's going to match the perfect season of uh, the 1976 Indiana Hoosiers. Nobody's done it since. Somebody's going to do it tonight. We're just trying to determine who. That would have been a really fun storyline to see, um, but unfortunately we didn't. Baylor had uh, those two losses, but that was the only blemishes on their record. But Gonzaga not able to match Bobby Knight's Indiana Hoosiers, one win short of a perfect season. And listen, you look at the whole context of the season, it was a great, great season for Gonzaga. But, you know, you're you're always just going to feel that regret. It's 31 and 1. It's a big one. You know, I'm a Giants fan. You know, I think you could ask any uh, you know, Patriots fan about that 2008 team that you know was 18 and 0 um, going into the Super Bowl. They finished the season 18 and 1. You know, yeah, they probably most of them will be positive and think it was a great season, but I think a lot of them, you know, will feel very bitter about certain things because say the Giants were the one in 18 and 1. You know, one game from equaling the uh, uh, 1972 Miami Dolphins and getting a perfect season. You know, you have that same feeling if you're a Gonzaga fan. You know, it's 31-1. and one. You know, just that one, you know, would have immortalized you in history. You you just have a bitter, you know, the, the feeling of the season is just very bittersweet. But ultimately, it's a great it's a great season for them, like I said, with the caveat um, that you always feel, you know, down about. But it's still, overall, um, you know, to have fun, uh, to have this season um, be the fifth straight season. They got 30-plus wins. 
Um, 30, you know, 31 and one ain't too shabby, even if it is one win short of a perfect season. Um, and to do all of the underrated aspect of it is to do all of it in the middle of a COVID season where everything's unprecedented, everything's all over the place. You know, programs are dealing with COVID pause. We're dealing with COVID pauses left and right. Games being postponed and shifted, or games being canceled, or whatnot. All of that kind of stuff. You know, it's still impressive on, on, on all sides, and that goes for Baylor as well. You know, we talk a lot about Gonzaga, and we talked a lot about Gonzaga in Final Four in the Final Four weekend, leading up into the national championship, and people were forgetting about Baylor and the great team that they were despite, you know, just two blemishes on the season. This was a Baylor team that, had, you know, they 18 years ago when Scott Drew took over, they were an absolute joke of a program. They were caught up in a, in a murder scandal um, that embar- that was on, you know, a huge national story that is embarrassing on, you know, so many levels. Um, nobody wanted to come play for Baylor. Scott Drew at one point had to open, uh, they, they had to, um, have open tryouts to the general student population, uh, to get people onto the team. And in, just in five years after that, he got Baylor to a 21 season and they had 21 uh, consecutive 21 seasons, uh, since 2008, um, you know, it's hugely impressive at what Scott Drew has done and how, you know, he's rebuilt the Baylor Bears program from where it was when he took over. You know, this was their first uh, national championship game since 1948. 1948. You know, it's just hugely impressive what Scott Drew did and the way in which they beat Gonzaga. Absolute domination. One of the most dominating championship wins ever but the the sad part about this is overall of how you know dud of a game it was you know it wasn't an entertaining matchup it wasn't the back and forth that Gonzaga versus UCLA was and that was sad because this were these two were the two best teams in college basketball the entire season and everybody was anticipating it why because in March Madness and with the circumstances of college basketball and how March Madness is designed, you rarely do ever get the two best teams in the season playing for a championship. You know, there are upsets and, you know, whatnot that, you know, of why March Madness is famous because of upsets hit. And you don't always get the number uh, number one and two teams throughout the season be competing for the title but this time you had it It was the first time since 2005 that the number one and number two uh, team going into the tournament faced off um, in the national title game since North Carolina and Illinois in 2005 you know there was so much anticipation going into this game who was going to win how good of a game it was going to be so it is a shame that it is a dud but congrats once again to the Baylor Bears for an absolutely unbelievable season and an unbelievable uh, championship uh, win there. So that wraps up college basketball coverage for this season. In the next coming weeks, we'll talk about, you know, the off season for St. John's, uh, you know, basketball as well, bring things a little bit more back home. But that pretty much concludes the college basketball uh, season 
um, this year. So we'll see what happens the rest of the way. Um, but one one more final thought before I move along here to football. Um, both teams, I, I think Baylor, you know, might take going ahead to our next season. I think both teams um, might take a bit of a step back. Baylor's going to lose Davion Mitchell, Jared Butler, maybe some other players to the league, especially Mitchell. He'll be a lottery pick. On the other side, eh, everybody will say Gonzaga will still be right there, that this isn't the end of anything, this is the start of something, because Gonzaga um, has a good uh, recruiting class coming in. They could potentially have... um, the number one recruit in the country and Chet Holmgren commit to them. They're heavy favorites to get him. His decision will be coming soon. We'll see what happens there. So a lot of people will say Gonzaga will be right there, and they, they will. They'll be in all the preseason rankings or whatnot. But um, it's just another failure for Mark Few. And, you know, time after time, he has all these great teams over the years, teams that, um, you know, they made it. This was their first title game since 2017. Didn't win in 2017. Didn't win again here. And yes, they'll be right there. And maybe they'll get, you know, Chet Holmgren, number one recruit in the 2021 class. They already have a strong recruiting class as well. You see what they do in the transfer portal. That's absolutely wild right now. Um, you'll see what they do there. And they're going to be in the top 25. Many will have them in their top 15, even top 10 uh, Gonzaga going into next season but I think ultimately for Mark Few as good of a team he's uh, as many good teams as he's had over the years I really don't think he'll have one as good as this one you know you can talk about all the recruiting rankings and you know the recruiting class that he's bringing in and all but this was a monumental disappointment and um, I don't really know if he's going to ever have a a better team than this um, you know, because the, over the years, the whole narrative about Gonzaga was, oh, they play in a smaller conference, don't aren't always exposed to the, you know, the bigger teams. They don't have, this year was the whole big storyline, oh, they don't have to go through the gauntlet of the Big Ten and all that kind of stuff. They still went through big teams in their non-conference, and um, their non-conference. Of course, it wasn't big like Baylor. They were supposed to be playing Baylor, but that unfortunately got called off due to COVID, but... You know, they played big teams. They played Virginia. They played uh, West Virginia, who at the time when they played them were really good. Um, you know, they played um, some uh, good teams in the tournament and break the, uh, broke the backs off of them. USC was the biggest one. I thought they were going to give them trouble. Just absolutely blew them out of the water. Um, so I, I think this was Mark Few's best team that he's had and. um you know, to lose like that, I, I, it's a killer. And I, I don't know if he's going to have as good of a team as he had this year. Um, yeah, that wraps up uh, pretty much the college basketball coverage. March Madness is done. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens next season. Um, but over now to the NFL. The NFL draft is coming up. I'm going to catch up a little bit with the Jets and Giants' move uh, or moves that they've made lately and then talk about the big uh, draft move that happened um, last week with the 49ers trading up to the number three pick. Um, the Giants, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the signing of Kenny Galladay for four years, $72 million, $40 million guaranteed in that deal. Um, you also had 
Uh, corner. Uh, they also signed cornerback Adoree Jackson, a three-year, $39 million deal. They also brought in uh, veteran tight end Kyle Rudolph. And uh, just to those were some of the bigger additions. But just to leave out the Jackson signing for a second, you look at Rudolph, uh, you look at Kenny Galladay, um, and those signings, there's really no excuses for Daniel Jones going into the 2021 NFL season. The Giants have pretty much that, whether people like the Kenny Galladay signing or not, I get there may be an overpay. The Giants are, you know, up against the cap. They haven't made much moves against the cap. Forget about the money for a second. It is something that they needed to do in getting Galladay. Um, you know, this offense has been bereft of weapons, you know, whether it's due to ineffectiveness or injury. Um, you know, they, they just need weapons. They need something um you know, for Jones to target. Um, you know, it, it just was really apparent last season that uh, they they need much better playmakers on on the New York Giants offense. And it was a good move to get Kenny Galladay. Um, yeah, you could question the money. I'd certainly question it just a little bit, um, especially with the um, you know tight cap that the Giants have to work around. They're up against the cap. They've restructured all of these deals. Um, especially when it comes to the Jackson signing. We'll get to that in a sec. But they've done a lot of restructuring or whatnot that, you know, could potentially be damaging on, you know, their their future uh, in terms of um, their cap and financial situation. Um, but, uh, you know, you take the Galladay and Rudolph signing all together, there's basically no excuses for Daniel Jones. You, you, you know, you... He's been given the weapons now this offseason to go out. And they the Giants could still potentially draft a wide receiver with the number 11 overall pick. They do draft a wide receiver, um, whether it be whoever falls down there. I'm guessing maybe Jalen Waddell uh, falls down there. Um, you could pick him. And at that point, there's just no excuses. You know, whether or not without Waddell, you, you have Kenny Galladay. You have Sterling Shepard. Um, Evan Ingram, uh, Kyle Rudolph, who Ingram, yeah, listen, I have my misgivings about him, but um, in general, you know, can be a good tight end every now and then. Um, or really a good, let's just say a good pass catcher every now and then. Uh, Kyle Rudolph, who's a, a, a good veteran um, and will bring in a bit more of a blocking presence than Evan Ingram did at tight end. Um, you also have um, you got Sterling Shepard, got Darius Slayton. There's no and Saquon Barkley's coming back, so you really have no excuses if you're Daniel Jones to go out and perform. This is the Giants saying, "All right, we put the weapons around you. Now, if he doesn't do anything, if he if he really doesn't take a step up, you know that he's not really the quarterback of the future." Many already have made that decision, but for the Giants, this is their ultimate. You know, you know. Show me what you got to Daniel Jones. If you're aren't, if you're not able to do it with this collection of talent at wide receiver, then um, you know you're never going to be able to do it um, here in the NFL with the New York Giants. Um, the Adoree Jackson signing, I think the money is a little bit is really high um, for Jackson, who's been a bit injured. Um, I think it's a they needed a cornerback uh, in terms of. Who they got, it's good, but it is a bit of an overpay. Um, 
but in in general they do needed to uh, they did need to upgrade at cornerback. Um, they just needed a, a cornerback in general. Um, they needed some help there on the outside. They got it. Um, they overpaid on it, but you know it is what it is at this point. Uh, you know they got a they filled the positional need, um, and I, I think the defense will uh, be much better. With that, they had a very decent defense. Uh, the Giants last season, I believe it was ranked 10th in the NFL overall. Um, so they had a good defense. Add to it if you can have some really good, um, you know, you had Bradbury at the cornerback last uh, year. You had some more uh, good corners. Um, this can be a really nice, solid defense um, going forward for the Giants, even more solid than they were uh, last year. Um Offensive line is the biggest concern. Going into the draft, the question is, will they uh, draft another wide receiver? They they could do so. They, it was the, This offense was completely bereft of really good playmakers um, last season. Galladay solves a bit of that, but they could still even use more. Um, you know, so they could potentially take Jalen Waddell. I could see that happening. Um or, you know, you take an offensive tackle, you have Elijah Vera Tuckers right there. That could be an intriguing option. To me, I'm choosing between, you know, those two. There's another offensive lineman. You can also, uh, you know, debate that. You could be thinking about Micah Parsons as well uh, or an edge rusher. There's a couple of different options, but I think it could be down to a wide receiver or uh, Elijah Vera Tucker. Um, so I think that will be a question uh, mark for the Giants where they will go with that 11 pick. Um, I think personally, I think you go with the uh, um, offensive tackle. I think you've spent, um, you, you know, whether I won't be mad if they go with the wide receiver, put it that way. But I think you ha you've spent a considerable amount of money in free agency this year and Kenny Galladay to upgrade the wide receiver core. Um, I think they could focus on the offensive line a little bit as well. They drafted Andrew Thomas last year. Bit of a mixed bag of a season. Um, improved as the season went on. But the offensive line could still could always use some upgrades for the Giants. So I think that could be uh, the best way for them to go with the number 11 pick. But over to the Jets now. Uh, the Jets uh, a couple weeks ago making a three-year $37.5 million move for wide receiver Corey Davis. Um, nice weapon there um, to get. Um, they got a couple other pieces as well, but that was their big notable signing um, for the Jets. Um, needed, to up, uh, needed to really upgrade at wide receiver. They probably hoped for someone like Chris Godwin or something like that who wind up taking uh, the franchise tag to go back uh, to Tampa Bay. Um or they signed him to a pay cut, I believe, something like that. Um, he, you, he, but now they signed Corey Davis. He, he upgrade at wide receiver a little bit. It's a nice underrated signing. Um, he's a good pickup there at wide receiver, but he will be um, catching footballs, not from Sam Darnold, but looks like to be Zach Wilson. As Sam Darnold last week, last Monday, in fact, pretty much right, uh, you know, um, in uh, Late Monday afternoon it was, Sam Darnold got traded 
uh, to the Carolina Panthers for a 2021 sixth round pick uh, in this year's draft and a second round and fourth round pick in 2022. This was, I think, a really good move for the Jets in that you just look at the trade. I really don't know how Joe Douglas pulled off getting three picks out of the Carolina Panthers for Sam Darnold, who for reasons you can say that you know the Jets didn't put enough talent around him or it was Darnold himself or the offensive line wasn't great, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He just was absolutely absolutely horrible you know in the three years that he's been around um in the league you know it's been it's been bad the Jets have gone nowhere with him you know um and like I said there's a number of reasons why things didn't work out with Darnold like I said the team didn't put enough playmakers around him didn't build the team around him well enough the offensive line wasn't great you know, all of these other things that came into play that wasn't always just Darnold's fault. But his play, but let's let's be honest about it, his play didn't really help him out either. There were times where he just made a lot of boneheaded interceptions that it's like, you know, what are you doing there? You know, he made a lot of boneheaded plays at times. Um, so, yes, while there were a lot of other factors with the coaching and general managing, um that, you know, come into question and a lot of moves or moves not made that come into question. Um, Darnold didn't do himself any favors at all whatsoever. So I think it's a it's a really good uh, move for the Jets in that they got three picks out of him. Absolutely shocking that the Panthers gave up three picks for, I mean, statistically one of the worst quarterbacks in the last three years. Again, asterisk for some of the other you know, circumstances that go into it. We could go on and on about, you know, the Darnold's uh, three years and why it went the way it did. Um, but, you know, I think it, it's good that Carolina brought him in. I think if Joe Brady can fix Sam Darnold, oh, my gosh. I mean, you're going to really hear, if you don't know who Joe Brady is, if he winds up uh, fixing uh, Sam Darnold, uh, you know, he's going to be a hot name if someone needs a uh, head coach. Um, or in general, he's just going. He's just going to become incredibly famous around NFL fans. Joe Brady, the uh, um, offensive coordinator of the Carolina Panthers, was the offensive coordinator at LSU during uh, Joe Burrow's fantastic uh, year. Um, you know, down there for LSU. Um, so I think Sam Darnold. I think he really needed this. I think he really needed a um, you know a fresh start somewhere else. He'll be able to learn from Teddy Bridgewater, who, you know, no pun intended, but will be the bridge quarterback. If Darnold doesn't beat him out to be the starting quarterback, um, you know, then he'll he'll learn under Bridgewater for a little bit. Bridgewater, at the very least, you know, he isn't the greatest of quarterbacks, but will win you a few games here or there. Certainly not the worst guy to have around. Um and then you develop Darnold and, you know, see see where you go from there. I mean, Darnold's going from a team absolutely bereft of weapons to a team that, you know, you got Christian McCaffrey, you got DJ Moore, you got your old buddy Robbie Anderson. I mean, what more can you ask for? Um, you know, so, I mean, I if I were Sam Darnold, I'd kind of be a little happy. You, you know, it's not often that you got a second chance in the NFL. And, you know, he's getting it here with the Carolina Panthers. I don't believe that the Panthers will take a quarterback at eight. I really don't believe the the narrative around that. I mean, 
why would you give be giving up three picks, three draft picks? You know, I don't care what round they are. Three picks for someone for someone like the record of Darnold, and then still burn your first round, or your first pick in your in the draft um, on a quarterback. It would be really puzzling to me. Um, but yeah, I think uh, um, you know, in general, um, for those who really made the whole, you know went on the whole thing that, oh, the Jets should keep Darnold and all that kind of stuff, you know, build around him. Robert Sala, you know, really likes him, all that kind of stuff. Two things when it comes to that, where I, I think that's stupid, that the Jets had to dump Darnold um, and, and, you know, move on from him. Start new. Get You know, likely looks like they're going to take Zach Wilson. I think that's the, the right direction to go in. And I, I think ultimately for those who say, you know, Oh, the Jets should have kept Darnold, developed the team around him. He's good. He's just had bad circumstances. Once now he's away from Gase, he'll be really good. All that kind of stuff. Two things: the cycle, uh, the life cycle, uh, the circle of life in the NFL. Really, you know, you have a GM that didn't draft him. You have a coach, uh, a new coach who didn't, who wasn't part of the drafting party um, that that got Darnold. You know, two guys there and his coach and his GM that weren't the guys who drafted him. You know, it's easy right there of why he's gone. You know, the new uh, uh, general manager, Joe Douglas, wants to draft his guy. Robert Sala wants to have his guy. And while it sounds like he did like Darnold, I mean, it's still just the way things go in the NFL. You you know, new front office, a new coach. You, you want to draft your quarterback, your um, your players. um you know, especially at the quarterback position and be the face of your franchise and you want it to be your guy. Um, and then the other thing is also the finances. Darnold's coming up on the last year of his rookie contract and then he has an expensive $20 million 50-year option, which even if he has a really good year, um, even if, you know, let's say the Jets would keep him and he has a good year next year, he's still not worth that $20, that $20 million 50-year option. Um, so, you know, you would wind up being stuck if you were the Jets, if you would keep Sam Darnold, trade from the, trade down from number two and build the team around him. And let's say he doesn't do well in 2021. Now you're stuck in that, um, you, you, you could, you could be forced to pay the $20 million 50 year option, or in just in general, if you want to move on from him, you're going into a 2022 draft class that, you know, really isn't that strong at the quarterback position. While this year it does, you could potentially have five quarterbacks going in the top in the uh, um, in the uh, top ten. Four could be going with the first four picks. Um, talk about that in a sec, but um, you know it would be incredibly risky bet for the the Jets to take to to say we'll we'll keep Darnold we'll see how he does next year we'll we'll trade down from number 2 build the team around him you know see how he does and then you know go from there um you know I I really just don't see you know why they would want to take that bet cuz once again like I just said if they wind up taking him and he doesn't do well next year or he's just average doesn't really improve, um, you know, you're stuck. You wind up going into a draft class where, you know, 
it's kind of like the 2022 draft class isn't great. I mean, why are you going to sign a free agent or, or something like that? Someone like, I don't know, Trubitsky who took a one-year backup and he'd be on the market again next year. I mean, what would the Jets do in that situation? You take that bet and you lose that bet. That could that That's the makings for a general manager being fired. So the Jets were never going to take that bet. I know they were on the fence, it seems like, for a while this offseason, up until the trade was made last week. But, you know, you, it just had to swallow the, the, you know, bite the bullet and I think, you know, pulled the trigger, which they ultimately did. And now they reset the financials on their quarterback position with Zach Wilson coming in. And, you know, and they'll go from there. I think, you know, it's what both, I think it's what both sides really needed. Um, but overall, let's go uh, talk a little bit more about the NFL draft that's coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks. It starts on April 29th. And the 40, San Francisco 49ers really shook up the draft um, last week and that they traded up from number 12 uh, to number 3 in the draft. Miami trading, first off, here's the craziness, Miami traded down from number 3 to number 12, then traded with the Eagles to jump back up to number 6. So the Eagles trading out of number 6 clearly tells us they're going to stick with Jalen Hurts at least for next year and see what Hurts can provide for the team and, and, you know, what if determine, you know, whether he can be the future as they enter the post Carson Wentz era. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, um, you know, now Miami sitting at six, the Eagles uh, trade out of the top 10, and now uh, the 49ers go into uh, number three. Um, they give up their first round picks in 20 in the 2022 and 23 draft and uh third round pick in 2022 all went to the dolphins um of course you know like i just said dolphins trade back up to six the eagles trade down um go back down to number 12 um and the eagles get a 2022 first rounder and a fourth round pick in this year's draft in exchange for the dolphins getting that sixth pick um so 49ers now it makes it clear that they want to take a quarterback. Jimmy Garoppolo is a guy who wins you games, but the biggest knock on him is that he's injury prone. He's missed a lot of games for the 49ers since he came over in a trade from New England. Missed a lot of games. Yes, they he, they got to the Super Bowl in 2019, um, but um, you know it's. Really, um, not, not 2020, I guess, like right before, month before the pandemic hit. Um, you know, you got to the Super Bowl with him, but ultimately, I think they're looking to upgrade. And that, you know, not amazing, but in general, he's just too injury prone for him, uh, for us to be, uh, for him to be our um, franchise quarterback long term. So it's clear that the San Francisco 49ers traded up to number three to go and get a quarterback. The consensus and the rumors are that it is going to be Alabama's Mac Jones. This I don't completely agree with. I'm going to go more into it um, in a second now as I'm going to pick my mock draft of the top 10 in this NFL first round. So we're going to go through the top 10 uh, of what not I'm not going off of any sources. I don't I certainly don't have any sources. I'm just going off of 
a either what I think will happen or what I think what that uh, that team should do. Um, obviously, the draft pretty much starts at three. If you listen to all the rumors and what's going on and all the the news coming in, the the dra- the NFL draft pretty much starts at pick three. We all know Jacksonville is going to take um, Clemson's Trevor Lawrence. Uh, 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 they're going to take quarterback Trevor Lawrence, and the Jets will take quarterback uh, uh, Zach Wilson. Both moves, I think that should be done. Obviously clear with Jacksonville that they should do that. Lawrence looks to be a generational prospect. Certain things, I was reading some deep analysis on him that he has to improve with, but in general he's you know one of the better quarterback prospects that we've seen in recent years. So uh, the obvious pick there at number one for Jacksonville. Uh, for the Jets, we just went into them and their situation with Sam Darnold. Clearly, they're looking to draft Zach Wilson, and when, t- uh, when asked about it, they clearly like um, the, the quarterback from BYU. Um, so, you know, the first two picks, you're going with Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson. Number three. Now, if you believe all the the talk and the rumors and whatnot and the, all the sources here is that it's going to be uh, quarterback Matt Jones from Alabama. Now, I don't think this would be a horrible pick, but I think three is a little bit high for Mac Jones. Um, you know, yes, he had great stats last year. You know, he had the best completion percentage in college football history. Um, all of that kind of stuff. He was aided by a great Keep in mind, he was aided by the best offensive line in the country in the Alabama Crimson Tide. You know, he had tons of time, tons and tons of time to make the throws that he did last year and to have the completion percentage that he did. Um, I think any of the quarterbacks that we may talk about in this draft with Justin Fields and Trey or whatnot would, would I don't know about do something similar in terms of the stats, but would do almost equally as good with that kind of offensive line. The biggest the biggest thing for me about this, about Mac Jones in this pick for me for the 49ers would really be is that I think you're looking for I think if the 49ers would pick him, you're really looking for a less injury prone Jimmy Garoppolo cuz that's what Mac Jones is. He's a pocket passer. He he's not a mobile quarterback. He's not going to beat you on the run. He's not going to burst out of the pocket for a 10-15 yard run. Um, you know, when he doesn't see anything up the field, he's not that kind of a quarterback. He is a pure pocket passer in the essence of Tom Brady, and that would be shocking. You know, if he's picked here because the conversation was constantly talked about that this guy would be taken by New England. Um, at some point, whether New England's moving up or, you know, Jones, Mac Jones just shot up this draft. It was expected that he would be available outside the top ten and that New England would would pick him, um, you know, because he is that pocket pass, uh, pocket passer kind of guy just like Brady is and that mold of a quarterback. But I think the 49ers picking him is just, you know, a guy who is just similar to similar in skill set wise to Jimmy Garoppolo, pocket passer, all of that sort of stuff, but doesn't get injured as much as Garoppolo has um with the 49ers. Personally, I think the 49ers should select either Justin Fields or Trey Lance here. I think would fit their system much more 
Um, you know, the 49ers execute a lot of play action on offense, a lot of motion. Um, I think that would be taking Fields or Lance, which suit their offensive system under Kyle Shanahan a lot more than it would taking Mac Jones. So I would go with Justin Fields in this position because the 49ers are a win-now team. I wouldn't go with Trey Lance because he is very inexperienced, hasn't played a lot recently. Um, so I would – he's a prime candidate that you would have him sit for a year, learn, develop under a quarterback, um, and then, you know, go from there. Um, so I think number three, personally, I think the 49ers should pick – Justin Fields, although it looks like it could be Mac Jones. At four, I would pick, um, uh, if I were the Falcons, I would pick Trey Lance here. Yes, they need defense. It's clear. They need defense. They have a pretty bad defense. But Matt Ryan, you have a, about a year with him left. Um, you know, he's been he's been not great. Um, and, and they have the weapon. I'm not saying their offense is bad or whatnot. They have the weapons or whatnot, but... You know, Matt Ryan is okay, but he's not the quarterback that he was. And I think the Falcons are going to have to start thinking about their succession plan. And I think taking Lance would be perfect. Not someone who's going to threaten Matt Ryan right now. And because of his contract, it's kind of difficult to move Matt Ryan anyway. Um, I think Lance would be perfect for what they're looking for. Ryan could uh, play out next year, um, you know, Whatever you do with him, you do with him there. But you at least get another year with him. And in the meantime, develop Trey Lance. Then in 2022, you hand the keys over to Lance. Um, I I think that is the best thing uh, for the Falcons to do. So I would pick uh, Trey Lance there. They should be smart with this pick. They, you know, they've, um, you know, this is their first top five pick since drafting Matt Ryan in 2008. So I think it would be smart of them. You know, this has got to be a pick they get right. I think getting Trey Lance and developing him would be good. We've seen the success of sitting a quarterback, um, you know, and letting him learn under a starter for a year, and then becoming um, the guy. How much of a success, uh, uh, how much success that could possibly bring um, to a team? Just look at Kansas City. I'm not saying Trey Lance is Patrick Mahomes, but. Other teams are certainly going to use this model with quarterbacks, and a prime team in this draft to do that is the Falcons. Number five, the Cincinnati Bengals. I've seen conversation about Kyle Pitts being picked here, Um, the great tight end wide receiver from Florida who's being um, very much hyped. Um, But I think the Cincinnati Bengals should be really smart here and draft the generational offensive tackle in Oregon's Penny Sewell. Joe Burrow is coming into next season off of a catastrophic ACL injury. Um, You know, he's already had a big injury in his career. You want to do everything you can to protect Joe Burrow because he's your guy. He actually played pretty decently before he got hurt last year. So you want to – he's already gotten hurt. Put – you know, build that offensive line and uh, protect him so he doesn't get – hurt more throughout his career. So go go ahead and make in my opinion which that which in my opinion not, should be the safest pick in the draft in getting Oregon's Penny Sewell right here. Number 6 in the Miami Dolphins, they were at 3, then they shifted from 12, then back up to 6 on this roller coaster of a trade that they that they had last week. Um but 
They land at number six. And I think with this pick, um, they should wind up um, going with um, a wide receiver. You got Tua there. I think the whole talk, we were constantly talking about Deshaun Watson for a long time. Um, I think that conversation is going away as Watson is getting in a lot of legal trouble that I don't have time to go into today, but I think has really quieted the trade rumors around him. And so I think Miami are going to go with Tua. Um, I think you got to give Tua some pass catchers. There is the temptation to reunite him with his uh, favorite tar- one of his favorite targets in Devonta Smith, um, who just won the Heisman last season. Um, but I think the better pick would be to go pick LSU's Jamar Chase. He had a fantastic um, career with LSU, especially that year with Joe Burrow. Um, you know, you talk about uh, Devonta Smith's Heisman year. Um, Jamar Chase was equally as good under Burrow in 2019, if not better. Um, so I think uh, a great pick for them there would be uh, Jamar Chase. Detroit Lions at number seven. Same thing, they should pick a uh, pass catcher, a playmaker here. They brought in Jared Goff in the trade with the Rams. The Matthew Stafford era is over in Detroit. It is now Jared Goff's time. Bring in a pass, uh, Mar- bring in a pass catcher for Jared Goff. Kenny Galladay is gone. Marvin Jones is both gone. They need some weapons out there for Jared Goff. If the uh, if the if the Dolphins pick Chase, I think here you go with Smith or Waddle. You know their pick right here, um, the Lions. Um, I think you go uh, with uh, Jalen Waddle. Um, if I, if I were the the Lions, um, I would go with that. Um, or Devonta Smith. Um, personally, I think Waddle might be a, a bit better of a prospect. Um, but you know, I would go with the. Uh, you know, Detroit one way or another just needs a pass catcher. At number eight, um, for the Carolina Panthers, um, I, I think you would go probably on defense here. There's talk of them. God forbid if Justin Fields dropped this uh, far that they would take him. I think that's ridiculous. They just gave up three quarter, uh, three, three picks for Sam Darnold. I think they do, uh, they do have a vested interest in trying to get him right. So I think Carolina may pick defense here. Might be, it might smell like uh, uh, Micah Parsons or something like that um, around here. Or you could see Kyle, uh, Kyle Pitts. Um, that's something else also for Detroit, just to go back on that. Kyle Pitts also an option. I think Carolina might go defense on this one with Micah Parsons. Um, Denver, I wouldn't be surprised if Denver trades up to four, but we're not really taking that into account um, as of right now. Um, so, you know, we'll, God forbid if any trades happen, we'll redo the mock at that time. But um, I think uh, Denver right here at number nine, um, you know, they could go um, defense as well. Um, you know, I think they could do something um, like that, or they um, get a pass catcher maybe. Um, I don't think um, under this mock, I don't have Trey Lance falling down that far, but that could be um, an option for them. Um, I think the best option for the Broncos would be to trade with the Falcons up to four and God forbid if Fe- if Justin Fields or Trey Lance is available. I think they need an upgrade from Drew Locke. Um, but Denver is pretty much set with wide receivers. I think if they sit at nine, 
They might look at offensive tackle. They might look at um, uh, defense as well there. Um, at number 10, um, if I, the, or they could look at cornerback. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm blanking here. Um, Denver, I think, could go with the quarterback, uh, cornerback here, um, and one of the uh, stellar cornerbacks. Um, that's out. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the Virginia Tech um, quarterback. I think they would pick him a uh, cornerback. Um, I think they would pick uh, uh, him there at nine. Um, I think Dallas um, down at ten would go with. They also need a cornerback. They could use some. They could really use a lot of upgrades all over the defense, Dallas, in this draft. Um, so I think Dallas at number ten will go for Alabama's Patrick Sertain at cornerback. I think they'll go with that um, a position that they need desperately. Um, so I think uh, uh, they'll go with uh, that pick there, and that rounds up the top ten of what you know. Uh, I think will happen, or I, I believe should happen with the top 10 um, of the draft. But we'll see what happens as the draft will take place in the next couple of weeks. Um, quickly on baseball, um, you know, before we end off today, we have, um, we'll talk a lot more about it um, next week. But the Yankees getting off to a 4-5 and five start this year. Um, they lost two out of three um, games to the Blue Jays to open up the year and won two out of three versus the Orioles and lost two out of three to the Tampa Bay Rays, although big win yesterday that they desperately needed in extra innings with that comeback and ultimately winning 8-4 over the Rays. Um, you got a lot of pitching issues. This this series with the Rays this past weekend really um, opened your eyes. Not really opened your eyes because as a Yankee fan, you're not surprised that this could potentially happen. You saw Kluber implode. You saw Herman implode. Um, and have bad starts, so that is going to be a question, um, you know, going forward for the Yankees is their starting pitching um, this season. You also had the Mets. Um, the Mets have, you know, they had to, they had their first series uh, wiped out due to COVID issues with the Nationals, so they're two and three so far this year. But the Na- the Mets come in with a lot of hype this year. The starting pitching acquisition with Carlos Carrasco and Francisco Lindor then in the trade and whatnot. But it's still the same issues, not being able to get Jacob DeGrom run support. It's still the same issues that are plaguing them. So we'll see what happens with the Yankees and Mets going forward. We'll have a more comprehensive um, overview of the start of MLB season uh, so far next week. Some controversies that have happened uh, so far in the beginning of the season for baseball. We'll dive into that a little bit more next week. But wrapping up another edition of the Mike Sports Roundup here. I'm Michael Zabo signing off here. And have a good day, everybody. We'll see you right back here next week.